0: We started four weeks ago uh, on a series that we've been calling Wonder, and we've been trying to explore what would it look like to live a life where we are constantly in awe of the things that God is doing, where we are living with a constant sense of wonder. Uh, This all came from a a book by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, The book itself is called Wonder, but there was one quote that really grabbed me and grabbed some of our staff, and so we were ruminating it for a long time. The quote, quote, I believe, goes something like this. It should be our goal to live life in a state of constant, radical amazement, to look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. To be spiritual is to be amazed. And if you were really here our first couple weeks, I, I kept going to those that last line: to be spiritual is to be amazed. And so what does that look like? To be constantly amazed. Are we uh this is a dated reference, but are we constantly like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? Like, whoa, like we just I just dated my anybody under twenties, like, who, what? Yeah, what is that? Um, I don't think it's that. But we started to break down from the first part of the series on. The first week we talked about how God is always working around us, and his work is amazing and worthy of awe and wonder, but sometimes we don't see it. Our lenses are clouded or dirty, and so to have clear eyes to see the things that God's doing, we sometimes have to wash our lenses, wash things away that keep us from seeing his work, things like entitlement, self-entitlement, or even uh, low self-worth or self-doubt, or critique, or being critical of other people, because all three of those things either focus our eyes on ourselves or on others. But when we focus our eyes on God, we clean our lenses and we see what he's doing regularly. Then in the second week, we talked about how, all right, now that we can see clearly where do we see God's awe-inspiring work, and we talked about our personal journeys, your individual personal journeys, and how when we look at them with a wide-angle lens, we can see that God has worked in our lives many a time. And we understood that God almost looks at our life like a parade from the Goodyear blimp. It looks down and and he sees the whole thing, whereas we see our life like from the side of the parade and we see one float at a time. And it's hard for us to get perspective to see that he's been working and he's going to be working. And sometimes we just can't see that. So uh, when we take a look at our journeys, He's been doing awe, inspiring work, and that our journeys aren't just our own, that our journeys, your journey is our journey, that you've been through things that someone else may be going through now, and, and by your experience, God has worked in their life. And so uh, when we see that, it's kind of, you put those dots together, and you're like, wow, God is really doing wonderful work. And then last week, Josh Thayer, our our media arts director, spoke and, and talked about What are you waiting for? How do we wait for the thing that we feel like we think that God has promised to us and still be in awe of what he's doing? How do we live with a sense of wonder while we're waiting? Because sometimes we get impatient, the waiting part. But Abraham and Sarah had to wait 16, 17 years. And still at times you would see Abraham live with a sense of awe and wonder. And so this week I wanted to talk a little bit about miracles. I'm not going to perform any miracles up here today that I know of. But I, I want to talk about a story that happens in the New Testament. and It's a story that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them tell this story. So that means that in uh, these four Gospels, they told all different things, but there were a couple stories that made an impact on all of them. And so they all told the story from their own perspective, and so it's a story that you know well. It's a story that if someone hasn't come uh, to church ever, they probably know this story. But I want to look at Matthew's vantage point of what happens in this story. It's a story of Jesus where we stereotypically say, yeah, this is uh, one of Jesus' miracles. I'll, I'll go to John's perspective at one point to talk about something that John said. But I want to take a look at Matthew's perspective of this story and see what, what's Jesus doing here. And then what does that mean for us living in awe of God's work? So it's going to be in Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 13. It'll be up on the screen, and I'm going to kind of slowly go through it. But I'll start in verse 13. Here's where the story starts. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So pause. So they start the story by making you go, well, what happened? When Jesus heard what happened, well, the storyteller, story listener, you're like, okay, well, I want to know that. And so I can tell you from Matthew's perspective, the way he's telling the story, the chronology of it, is right before this, John the Baptist, who was the prophet who foretold that Jesus was coming and would be the Son of God and the Messiah. He, he paved the way for Jesus' ministry uh, here on earth. He was the guy who foretold Jesus was coming. He also was family. On a less, you know, Bible, spiritual, theology level, he was like, he was Jesus' cousin. And just before Matthew tells this story, he tells the story of how uh, the royalty of the day sought out John the Baptist, murdered him, and beheaded him. A brutal, gruesome murder of a family member is what precedes the beginning of this story. And Jesus just has gotten word that his cousin. John the Baptist has been brutally murdered. And so that's what's happening when it says, when Jesus heard what happened, that's what happened. said so he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus hears this, not just, you know, troubling news, not just this terrible news, but this gut-wrenching, like it's not just that his family is sick, or that his family has died, it's that his family was brutally murdered. And he hears this, and so he withdraws by himself. Can I get a shout from the introverts in the room? Yeah. Actually, that's not how it works. Introverts are like, no, I'm not saying a anything. Right, so um, he goes to withdraw, and so if the people from the town follow him. Like, he can't get a minute. Like, he goes out by boat, and the and the masses follow him and wait on the shore. Jesus is dealing with some stuff, some personal gut-wrenching stuff, and people just won't leave him alone. They won't let him go. They won't, uh, you know what? Jesus' cousin was brutally murdered. Maybe we give him a minute. Nope, that's not what they did. They followed him and waited for him as soon as he gets off the boat. They're in, they're on, they're in his space, okay? So continuing on, when Jesus landed, and saw a large crowd he had compassion on them and healed their sick this is this is a miracle in itself jesus is dealing with this terrible awful i mean unthinkable tragedy in his life but he sees others who have need and he has compassion some of you today are dealing with some stuff and I'm not minimizing that stuff. You've, you're in a relationship that just recently shattered out of nowhere. You, you are having issues with a, a parent or a child. There's a sickness in the family. There's a job that once was there that's not there anymore. There's hope in a situation that now that hope has been blocked out and eclipsed by the moon. It, it Whatever the stuff you're dealing with today, it's real. It's real. And... My guess is this baggage, you did not hang it up on the coat racks outside. It's sitting next to you in the pew. It's on your lap. You're in the service and you're like, yeah, can you get the sermon over? I got real stuff I'm dealing with. And so Jesus has some real stuff he's dealing with. But he looks around when he gets off the boat. These people are up in his business. And he sees that they have need, that they're sick, that they're hurting. And he has compassion. And so there's this miracle happening where Jesus is dealing with stuff, yet has the ability to look outside himself and exhibit sacrifice and compassion for others. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it really is a miracle in and of itself. Continuing on, verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So not only did Jesus go by himself, he went to a remote place. He went far away. He he plugged in his phone at home, and he left it there, and he went away. There's no cell service where he is. There's not a CVS or a Wendy's anywhere nearby. He went far away from civilization. He just wanted to get away, and the people came anyway. And so now there's this mass amount of people in the middle of nowhere, basically, and the disciples are like, we need to get these people back to civilization. We need to to get these people back so, I mean, they they can eat. Some of them are getting ordered. So we, we need to get them some food. They need to go home. Say that to Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, we know from the end of the story that the count of people in this was thousands. It's in the thousands. And the disciples, there's a dozen, one single dozen, Okay. One dozen, many thousands. And he says, You, give them something to eat. The disciples are like, What do we look like? How are we supposed what, what are you thinking? Are we, you know, they, they, there's this unreasonable ask from Jesus to his followers, which is something he does regularly, even to us. He makes a request, he gives us a call, he pushes us in a direction. We're like, there's no way I could do that. How was how do you expect me to do that? He does that to his disciples. Verse 17, the disciples say, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So here's a pause. In John's version of this story, and if you want to check out John's version, it's chapter six, you can uh, either after this uh, service or write it down or whatever. uh, John tells the story that the two fish and the five loaves actually comes from a little boy. There's a boy in the crowd who says, well, I mean, I know they're all hungry. Here's what I have. And so there's two fish and five loaves. Now, I don't know if they're big loaves or small loaves or muffins. Are they, are they keto? I don't, I don't know. I mean, keto friendly. I, I don't know, right? Verse 18. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Crisscross applesauce. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. Multiple transactions. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of people of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. It's a miracle. And the way I've always read this story from the time I heard it as a child to the time I've grown up, I saw this that Jesus pulled a David Copperfield. He had bread, and he just kept pulling it out of his sleeve. And the fish were in this sleeve, right? He, he's, he's doing a thing, and he's doing abracadabra with his magic wand. He's performing not just a miracle, but a magic trick. He's taking two fish and five loaves and feeding 5,000 people with it. That's what I've always believed. Now, I had a professor where I went to school at Asbury university they used to say to us your belief system is a series of beliefs and what you need to be careful of is that when you have formed your belief system that it's not set up like a jenga tower where if one of the items is proven to be wrong the rest of them all fall over that sticks with me mostly because i'm a big fan of jenga but i remember that because there is a series of things that i believe there's a series beliefs that you have, that the church has to an extent. And some of them are core and some of them are uh, supportive of that. And for me, I always thought this was Jesus performing a creative, he's the creator of the world. So why couldn't he create some meals? Why couldn't he throw out some salmon and some ciabatta bread? And why why couldn't he he? He's all powerful and he's creator This is nothing to him. And I'm pretty sure that's what I believe. But let me lay out an alternative story to what we just read. Jesus is there with 5,000 people plus. There's a dozen uh, disciples. The disciples say, we need to get everybody home. Now, the people that left, left the village, and some of them knew where they were going. And so some of them just, Jesus is there, and they went. But some of them went, this might be a full-day thing. I might pack a lunch. I might get a, I might throw a snack in the bag. I might grab a lunchable. Seven bags of Cheez-Its. My Michelle's not here. She was at first service. My wife packs like eight snacks every time we go out anywhere. granola bars, meat sticks. She's like a traveling uh, she's got her traveling go bag constantly. So we always have food. Some people potentially could have packed some stuff for the day. And the alternative story to Jesus being the, pulling the David Copperfield is that they get there and one of the people who brought their food is a young boy. And he's there and he overhears Jesus say, can you give them something to eat? And the disciples maybe amongst themselves are like, is he crazy? How are we supposed to do this? We don't have any food. And the young boy maybe went, well, here's what I got. You want to use what I have? And the disciples went, well, okay. And so they said, Jesus, this, this is all we have. And potentially what could have happened is amongst the thousands of people that are there, the people that did bring food could have gone, wow, what a sacrifice from that kid. He just gave up everything that he brought. Let me see what I got here. Let me pull out what I got. All right, here's an extra water. Here's some extra stuff. here's Here's my stuff. And maybe somebody else went, well, here's my stuff. And potentially everyone could have eaten because there was a wave of compassion and generosity amongst the people who were there close to Jesus who were hurting. If you read the scripture detail for detail, nothing in the scripture contradicts that version of the story. And in that version of the story, everyone is fed. In that version of the story, there could be food left over. That version of the story very well could have happened. Do I believe it? I don't know. I. I think I probably believe that Jesus just created stuff. But with this one, is it any less of a miracle if those are the details of the story? I would say no. It's less of a magic trick. It's less of a David Copperfield or David Blaine for sure. But is it less miraculous when when thousands of people who are hurting and carrying pain, bringing their own stuff, They brought people to be healed because they're sick. If those thousands of people all decided, you know what? I will give sacrificially and generously to this thing so that everyone who is in need can have their needs met. Is that less of a miracle? I would say no. It's not a magic trick. But it would be a miracle. And that's the thing. Around us every day are miracles. And it doesn't make it any less of a miracle if I can explain it. Last Sunday, I was with my wife in Arizona. I uh, had a red-eye flight from Phoenix, Arizona to Detroit. We got to the airport and all of a sudden alerts went off on my phone that a major tornado had touched down right along the Alabama-Georgia border. It was an EF4 tornado. 23 people died It was a huge tragedy, the biggest tornado to hit the United States in three years, since 2016. And so because I'm the director of DRAW, I'm making all the calls that we have to make. I'm setting up all the things we need to set up and finding out what the needs are in the immediate and in the later stages. And with our team here on the ground, we were able to set up so that my flight would leave and land at 6 a.m. in Detroit. I would get to our warehouse. We would load up with buckets of supplies that are needed, you know, two to four days after a storm, and we would drive down. And so I left at 8 a.m. On the Monday, we got back with one of our volunteers we drove down. We got there. There was uh, two warehousing units. One was Providence Baptist Church, which is on the north side of Beauregard, where the tornado kind of left its path. And on the south side is Smith Station, which is a volunteer fire department. That is the second donation station. 36 hours after the biggest tornado in the United States in three years, I get to the donation station, and it is packed. The gymnasium is off this Providence Baptist Church is full of clothes and donations. Every hallway is loaded with bottled water, with food that's been dropped off, with supplies that have been dropped off. Uh volunteers are spilling out. They were keeping people out of the uh damaged area because search and rescue was going. And but there were tons of volunteers. I like to say in the South, everybody likes to use their chainsaw. And so there's I mean people were ready to cut up some tree wood, right? Like They were ready. People had gone from two to four to six hours away. They had uh, taken time off work. They had gotten babysitters. They had figured out their own responsibilities. They got in a car. They drove to a place where they didn't know anybody just because they knew that the people that were there were at their rock bottom as a community. 23 people had died. There was confusion and pain and and just lost. And they wanted to be a piece of hope. And all those people were milling about, they helped. We showed up with a trailer and there was like 10 people that come out like pounds out of a tiny car. And they're unloading all of our buckets along the side. And they tell us, leave them outside. These will be the first to go out after they open up the search and rescue area. And I look back, I step back and I see all these people and all the supplies and the volunteer who drove with me because he knew I only had two hours of sleep on the red eye. I was leaving. He said. Uh, do you need a second driver? I said, I'm leaving in 20 minutes. He said, let me get my bag. And he rode down and back with me, which was great because I hit a wall about Atlanta, right? And I look at all this and I say, this is a miracle. I am watching God performing a miracle in Lee County, Alabama. I can explain how it all happened, but that doesn't make it less of a miracle. It doesn't leave me in less awe of God. I left Lee County driving back with a sense of wonder. Our team, we we sent another team down to support the area. They left this morning. Uh, Jamie Breckenridge goes here. He's our development coordinator. He he's our team leader. Had this team. They're going to go down for the next week. They're going to support the donation stations and the warehousing and be a support to that community in as many ways as they can. And these people came from different places some from our coffee buckets, some from other churches that support us. They get in a car, they take time off work, they go down. They are a driving miracle. Keep them in your prayers. But I can explain it, but it's still a miracle. And I'm in awe of what God's doing in the midst of it. Three weeks ago, if you missed the first of the sermon series, and let this be a lesson to you, don't ever miss the first Sunday of a sermon series again. Because the first Sunday of this sermon series, three weeks ago, we ended the service by taking a second offering. Only the second offering was not one where we collected money. It was instead where we handed out envelopes that had cash that we gave to you. And on it was homework. It said, put this money towards something that you're in awe of God's work in. And then tell us about it. Email us at wonder at com or drop off you know, just a, a brief explanation in the office. Some of you uh, haven't responded yet. You can still do that. Email us in if you haven't told us what you've done. We want to hear the stories. But we got about a third of the stories back from what happened to the money. And I can tell you what happened. Miracles. There's a woman who lives five, five miles from here who a couple weeks ago, her daughter was killed in a tragic car accident. This week, from two separate people who didn't know they were doing this, she got two letters of people who had seen her interview on the news and said, we are in awe of your faith. We are in awe that you have hope and belief in a God. Because in her interview after her daughter had passed, she said that her daughter was a child of God and she's thankful for the time that her daughter had on earth and she's even more thankful and praises God that she gets to be with him now and God's provided for them in many ways and given them strength And two of our people were inspired and just said, we are inspired by you. Please take this and put this toward some of the costs of the funeral. At a school close by, there are students who are uh, low-income students that have to be on assisted uh, meal plans there at the school. And this week, some of them showed up at school and went to go pay for their meal, and they found that their accounts were full, unbeknownst to them because they push on day after day, even in the face of tough times. There are people in Beauregard, Alabama, who are opening buckets right now because somebody, unbeknownst to them, donated supplies they bought with the money or supported our team that went down. And they don't know where it came from, but it's there at the moment that they need it. There There are children in Nigeria. You see on the map all the stars where the money has spread out. I had some of these countries, I didn't know where they were, so I gave it to my wife. I'm like, can you find these? Please. <laughs> like, Geography is not my thing. There are children in Nigeria who now have a bed that didn't have a bed. There are missionaries in Korea that have support for another month of work there where they didn't have that support before. Many of you took what was given to you and said, oh, I will do uh, my part, and then you added to it. And so from the money that I know was reported back, what was done with it, it was almost more than doubled what went out. Many of you added to it and combined it. And there are people in our community who are struggling with an illness and maybe have lost a job. And this week they opened an envelope of $540 to help cover some of the bills that have been piling up. Those are miracles. God is working in our midst. And this homework assignment, if you were a part of it, hopefully you saw that you get to be a part of the miracles. When God pulls you toward the things that you're in awe of, you're part of it. He starts to change you. I'm a believer that when you get close to God, he starts to transform your heart to be more like his. And so maybe you put energy or money or volunteering or, or you, you prayed and prayed and prayed and God finally directed. There was a scholarship fund that was started because someone took this money and doubled it and put it somewhere nearby there was, I'm, I was in tears reading story after story in at wonder at Clarkstoncommunity.com. It got to the point where like, it became like social media where like sometimes you log on, even though you don't have anything to look for, you're just like wasting time. But instead of wasting time, I just wanted to keep reading the stories. I, I've been ingesting your stories for three weeks. And what I've seen is that God has called us to be part of miracles. The part of this story that just gets me is that the disciples said, we got to send these people home because they need food. And so Jesus' response is, you give them something to eat. God calls us to be a part of his miracles. We don't have to pull a David Carperfield. We don't have to be the magic trick. We just have to be ready to be faithful, and God will work the miracles through us. That there are things that we believe firmly, and when we go toward them, they change us. And maybe you heard a story of someone else and the miracle that they're part of. And now you're like, well, maybe I'll be a part of that. And what happens slowly in this transformation is that this church becomes a world-changing church, that the power of God through us in his calling allows us to be a part of the miracles that he means for us to be a part of. And we live in awe of what he's doing. We step back and go, wow, God, that was a doozy. All right, let's do that again. And we continue to be faithful, and he continues to cause us to the things where he's working And when we live with that sense of wonder and awe, it changes us. The last part of this story that I do not want to forget is that Jesus was dealing with some stuff. This miracle happened. You probably even forgot that I mentioned the first part of the story. Jesus fed 5,000. Hooray! You know what else Jesus did? He mourned the loss of his family member, his cousin, that day. Today you came in and I do. And we are not minimizing what you are going through at all. Some of you have brought in. When I say doozies, you have brought in some doozy of stories. You've got an illness that you've been diagnosed with. You've got a family member that just doesn't seem like they're going to make it. You've got this nagging thing at home every day, and you just won't go. There's no. You see no way out. There's no hope with this thing. And so I want to say I get that you've got that, and I think that God. Uh, you, You do need to take time to let God heal you, to spend time in his presence. But I also want to encourage you in the midst of that, please do that. But also take a look around. And like Jesus, as you deal with your stuff, don't forget to see the others that have need. Because when you do and you see God working, like Jesus, you have compassion. You say, I know I'm dealing with stuff, but so is this person. So let me put myself into that. And maybe in that process, the thing you're dealing with starts to be transformed. Maybe as you look to be part of the miracle, a miracle happens in you. To be spiritual is to be amazed. These last two, three weeks, I've read your stories. I've seen the work that you've done. It is incredible. You've seen the map of all the places where it's gone. It's been widespread and impactful in hundreds of and hundreds of lives. People who didn't have beds now have beds. People who don't have food now have food. People who were in mourning have hope. People who have nothing were given something. We, the church, are called to be a miracle when we see and live in awe of God's work, when we live with a sense of wonder. So church, may you this week see God working in a child's dedication, at a mission that's close by, in a school teacher, at your kid's school, in a relationship at work, with your parents, don't forget to notice the small things that God's doing to pull back and go, wow, that changed some things. May you see the work, the wonderful work of God. May you be drawn to it. May you be pulled toward that. May you be part of it. And through that, may you be transformed and understand that when we live with a sense of wonder, we know that to be spiritual is to be amazed. And we become a church, not, not of magic tricks, but of miracles, because God's power is the one pulling us. Let's pray.